What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 534. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going back into the world of Japanese animation with animator Benjamin Hens. If you follow my YouTube channel, you probably recently saw the short film Dead Astronaut. And we're actually going to be talking a little bit about our future work on a Dead Astronaut 2. But Mr. Hens, welcome to Wrong Real. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's it's a I have long fantasized about appearing on the on the program. Excellent. Well, <laughs> whatever fantasy you got in mind, just DM them to me, and uh, you know whether people know <laughs> okay. it or not, I can do like a slow reveal over Skype. They don't. Nobody has to know. We can just okay. go on recording and talking about animation and doing all sorts oh, of strange great. things. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so well, we started talking, I guess a couple months ago, you just DM'd me at random and said, hey, I just did this animated film, Dead Astronaut, check it out. And I was like, holy shit, this is fucking insanely cool. Like, I love the animation style, I love the story, I love like the, the visual storytelling. I just, I loved everything about it. I was like, well, do you, are you, would you be down to my licensing it and putting it on my YouTube channel? And you're like, sure. And so uh, we were <laughs> off to the races and then we started talking and we realized, yeah, we have a lot of common interests in terms of comics and animated films and that sort of thing. But for people out there who don't follow you on Twitter, just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your, your background. Okay. Uh, well, I, um, I guess my first, uh, b big entrance into the public sphere was with my effects pedal company, Dwarfcraft Devices. Um, so I learned a little bit about electronics and a bunch about marketing and a whole lot about filmmaking through that venture. Um, now, granted, I was mostly self-producing commercials, which is not terribly exciting from a filmmaking perspective. Oh, Ridley Scott, they produced like a thousand commercials before he started making movies, so they can be a great training ground. Oh, believe me, uh, I have reminded myself of that many times. Yeah. Um, and like eventually we, um, I started tacking on little narrative parts or camera tricks, you know, just mostly to satisfy myself. Uh, but you know, every once in a while someone would, would respond to that, um, f from the audience. And, and I got to know my, my local, uh, filmmaking, uh, uh, compatriots, Oh, well, Eau Claire, Wisconsin does have a lot of filmmakers, and I went out there for Midwest Weird Fest in 2018. Oh, was it Dean Bertram who invited me? Hang on one second. Oh, yeah, Dean Bertram. Yeah, so I need to get him back on the show because he's worked on a bunch of like anthology horror films and things like that, but he's an Aussie mm -hmm. who lives in Eau Claire or outside of Eau Claire, but I, I loved it when I visited it. Yeah, it's um, so it's a, it's a good place to grow up though you will not like growing up here uh, because it is like statistically the most average town in America. So it feels, it feels like a small town. So there's all the good and bad parts of a small town. Uh, yet we're close enough to Minneapolis where you can see, you know, bands or whatever in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or, um, you know, and, and Eau Claire has pl plenty to offer to uh, on its own as well 
But I remember there was a giant party one night at one of the bars in Eau Claire, and it was like mm. 200 people showed up, and every single one of them, they're an animator or a musician or a novelist. Like, there are shitloads of creative people in the area. Absolutely. Um, and I was, we got, a, we got a new kid one time in high school, and he's, we were in art class, and he's like, so what do you do for fun? And I was like, uh, God, what do we do for you ever fun? You bopped your baloney? Like, yeah, I got to see out of <laughs> vacation. Just, and so what yeah, I This told guy him taught me like, how to do something really neat. He's like, how do you use a magazine? <laughs> <laughs> I, I told him, you got to make your own fun. And honestly, I think that's where a lot of uh, that uh, the creatives come from, is that if you're not drinking... Like, there's not a ton to do outside of the house. Go out and chop down trees, man, and, like, you know, wrestle with a fucking buffalo. Like, my, all my well, fantasies sure. of yeah. the Midwest are all these, like, these tall, brawny people descending from, like, Scandinavians who spend all day <laughs> with, like, an axe over one shoulder, wearing, like, a plaid shirt and jeans and boots, just stomping around. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing I that we who live here forget is that we are a minute from the woods at, at any time. Um, so... And actually, since since uh, quarantine, I've gotten like pretty seriously into hunting. Very nice. Now, what's the what's the best stuff to hunt for? Because my hunting is limited to quail, and I've hunted. What did I? I've hunted pheasants a few times, but mostly it's quail. But uh, is it like good deer hunting around there? What are we? What are people into? Well, yeah. Um, so. Uh, bow hunting for deer is a, like an extremely long season and it's interrupted by the like the nine day gun season uh, in the in the middle of November. How um, close to a deer do you have to get with a bow before you get a realistic chance of a kill shot? Me? Uh, six feet. Gotcha. I no, I've heard like even for people who are good, like <laughs> it's like 20 or 30 yards. They get really close. So that's the, that's the real challenge yeah. or the real trick. How the hell yeah. do you get close to a deer? Like well, my mother lives down by the James River in Richmond and they're just, she's just infested with deer. And so they're almost like, they act like pigeons do here in New York where yeah. you can get pretty close to them. But it's just because nobody's hunting the damn things because you're in a suburban neighborhood. Right. So they get very, yeah. they get a little... I don't know, a little cocky about how oh, safe yeah, they are. Absolutely. There's there's a park on the edge of town uh, that I was walking through with the dog just yesterday, and uh, two doe just came leisurely strolling across our path maybe 25 yards away, and the dumb dog didn't see them. And I was like, Bimo, look, yeah, look, like, like, let's look over there. And she finally saw them, and the, like, the deer waited for the dog to look at them before they left i i swear they knew what was going on there they were to totally unimpressed by your domesticated animal yeah my mom is a little west holland terrier who thinks he's like a bull mastiff and so he goes berserk whenever he sees the deer but they're unimpressed <laughs> with his protests yeah yeah that a dog like that needs to get sat on by a big dog yeah and then they figure out their their size like, oh i weigh 15 pounds <laughs> yeah yep. I, I am not a total badass <laughs> that's right yeah, but I guess there's like a long history of like novelists and painters and all sorts of artists who live in a slightly more rural or woodland environment getting uh, inspired by it. I, in my adult life, 20s, 30s, and 40s, I've just been drawn to cities and I keep finding myself mm -hmm. living in cities. The one exception would be when I took two years off to go to business school in North Carolina. And Chapel Hill is a university town surrounded by rural North Carolina, but even so, I didn't use any of the rural land to my 
like to uh, to my advantage. I always stayed in town. So I finally realized, yeah, I like movie theaters. I like restaurants. I like bars. I like all the creature comforts that are, uh, you know, part of civilization. So how did you start making the transition from the music biz into the animation biz? And how did you start cooking up this idea for Dead Astronaut? Okay, um, I'll, I'll try to do. I'll do the medium version of this story. There's there's a short and a long, but uh, so basically, running an effects pedal company turns into. I mean, you have to do everything. It was me and my wife, and at, uh, up to like t- three employees at a time. Um, but that means you know we're doing engineering and customer service and marketing and just everything you got to do and eventually that became more and more marketing and I just like sort of the big moment was I was at a trade show we were having a shitty weekend and it was the last day of the show and somebody gave me a hit off their little uh totally legal weed uh vape thing and I sat down in my booth and it was just I could just feel like the industry crushing down upon me. Now did you and get was, into it because you just really loved creating pedals or what was what was like what was the initial hook that got you so excited about that world? Good question. Um because I imagine if like marketing was not your passion, the marketing was pulling and pulling you away from whatever was initially drove you to that biz in the first place. Absolutely, yes. Uh the reason I started was just an absolute love for uh, creating new sound and uh, composing with it and, and things like that. And it was at a time in my life when I had more time than money. So I was able to learn a pretty small amount about electronics and start building my own stuff. And then, uh, you know, I tried to sell some of that to sort of, uh, recoup my costs and that sort of tumbled out in front of us and I, I lost my day job and like within a week I got a call from Analog Haven in Santa Monica and he, so Sean the guy who runs the store was like hey I really like this thing of yours do you have any more things and I was like yeah I've got four more things and like really I had like two and then two other good ideas and he ordered 10 of everything and like bang it was a business nice. and it was it was my life you know so yeah it just, i just got so sick of the industry and and marketing and it it got so far away from making music that it just it just broke my heart it just slowly tore it into it's like people who go into the video game industry they love gaming they grew up gaming and then they join the industry and they never get to play a game 
ever again. Yeah. <laughs> like the thing yeah, that they love right. is taken from them. Their dream becomes their worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Because it's well, so demanding and so brutal. Absolutely. And that's like why I, if I can avoid it, I'm going to like not learn anything about video games. Uh, like other than things that like, you know, directly to re- relate to the art or the sound or whatever. Because I, everything I try, like I have to be an expert at. So yeah, the key is to let some of your hobbies remain hobbies. I made a strategic choice early on where I kept thinking, all right, I love MMA. I love video games. I love comics. I love movies. I love television. Should I cover everything or should I cover a few of them and let, a, and let the others be my pressure release? Like when you're done podcasting and editing and all that kind of stuff, like how are you going to unwind? And playing a video game for me is one of the best ways to unwind. And if I was worried about reviewing them and covering that industry, then mm-hmm. it would become work. And then I would feel like, oh, well, shit, should I stop playing in order to make a video? Like, and so I finally decided, you know what? Ran about film and television. Occasionally, you can bring in some knowledge of gaming, but let gaming be a hobby, let MMA be a hobby, and let the rest be work. And that way, you've got some compartmentalization. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little bit of a curse when you get too deep into something. And I don't know exactly when it happened, but now when I watch uh, a movie or anything, I'm doing it from like an academic standpoint. You know, I'm analyzing everything, thinking about everything. And the so the media that really jumps out at me, music, movies, whatever, is the stuff that makes me forget to work while I'm consuming it. Well, your music for Dead Astronaut was one of the coolest aspects of it because it's like just a, such a massive part of the story and it really helps set the tone in that world. And the fact that you are able to animate and create music makes you uh, like uh, potentially someone like like John Carpenter down the road. Like, you know, obviously if you don't have to hire a composer to do scores, that's one less person you have to hire. And that's one of the reasons he started composing scores in the first place. He's like, all right, well, I know how to do all the roles. I won't have to pay a composer if I can just whip up my synthesizer and like, Dun, da, 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 dun, da, 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 and start rocking out some tunes for like, you know, Assault on Precinct 13. Oh man. The one that, the one that sticks in my head is there's just a, there's a scene in, in Precinct 13 where where the score is just this bass riff. It's just like do 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 it's so fucking simple and beautifully kraut rock. It's like, oh well, so he usually gives himself like three whole days to compose and record his scores. <laughs> but right. you know, sometimes yeah. a deadline is a wonderful, beautiful thing. I feel like Having too much time and too much money can be an absolute curse for some filmmakers. It can give you absolute mm-hmm. creative paralysis. A, a, mm-hmm. a deadline is, a, is an incredibly useful thing, and you can always take what you've learned and apply it to the next project. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the score that ended up in Dead Astronaut was like the third iteration, and I had much, much bigger, uh, more, I guess, uh, composer-ish ideas at first and like ideas to integrate all kinds of different hardware and shit and then it was like get getting down to the line and i was just like all right just just set up stuff you can connect with immediately and it it ended up being like a two-hour session and like a 45 minute edit nice now, as I told you before on the film, what really grabbed me was this series of dissolves where you're showing the character over the course of several missions 
mm-hmm. you're showing his slow like disintegration into the dead astronaut is this like giant parasite eats its way out of his head and like takes over until like the transformation is complete. But over the course, it's like jumping from like mission one to mission 50 to mission 200. And your mind starts filling in the gaps like, Oh my God, how many bananas adventures has this character had? And that's sort of what it really responded to. Did you, but did you start with the character of dead astronaut and like, all right, well I need to get him to that point. Or how, how did the idea for the character pop into your head? Like which, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, in this case, it was definitely the, the image of a skull in a spacesuit, Um, and that's, that's a really common, uh, image. Like if, if you just search for a dead astronaut, you'll find just tons of paintings and, and drawings and stuff. Um, I, and so some people would say maybe that's, you know, bad marketing, but I, I kind of feel like, I don't know, obviously people connect with that. Like, I'm not going to try to take away anybody else's dead astronaut painting, you know? Um, it would be like if you called it dead gladiator or yeah. you know, dead underwater explorer, like these are roles that are performed by people and right. they exist like dead hunter. Like it could, it could have been anything. You just, you happen to go a dead astronaut. So, right. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, it kind of became like, okay, if this is going to be the story, we have to figure out where this guy comes from. And I think really just brainstorming on that is where I came up with that trick shot of the, it's, you know, however many, I think I did one background and like 20 some different versions of the head and 20 different backgrounds. And I was like, so, you know, we can't, we can't do this whole short frame by frame hand drawn, but. I can do a sick fucking trick shot with a shitload of still images. Um, and that's like, that's something that I, I I'll probably do forever is, is try to work in a, a trick shot. Uh, because funnily enough, talking about anime today, that's one of my favorite things. They in- use tons of them. Yeah, absolutely. I love like what they call like those postcard yes. images. Like if you're watching Golga 13, they'll use a postcard image where it's much more exquisitely detailed and they'll just kind of push mm-hmm. in on it or like pull like a Ken Burns and then they'll move on. Or they'll just show somebody while the, the image of them is still, the background might be in motion, but it's, there are all sorts of ways right. that are incredibly dynamic and exciting and stimulating, but in terms of the amount of work involved, you're saving yourself some time. And I love the tricks that they've cooked up over the years and they've created this whole vocabulary of a bunch of those tricks. Yeah. And so when you're a kid, you watch it, you don't know that that's a cheap trick. I just read it as beautiful. Yeah. It becomes an aesthetic and like a stylistic choice. Yeah. When I found out that was, that was a, that was a trick. I was like, holy shit, we're doing a lot of trick shots from here on out. Absolutely. Without a doubt. <laughs> or just little, some things that save you time like that, and which work in terms of your story. The first time you see dead astronaut, he's not dead, but he's sitting in a certain pose at his console from behind. And the next time we see him same pose, but his head just looks a little bit different, but it's like, you saved yourself some yeah. time reusing that. But it was like, Oh, beforehand he was the live astronaut now he's dead astronaut but his <laughs> yeah. job remains exactly the same as like, you know yeah next missions in front of him yeah and that was also a way to pack in or at least allude to a shitload of lore 
without having to get wordy about it. Absolutely. You can go back in time and do your uh, prequel trilogy anytime you like of like uh, yeah, right. of those, of the standalone missions. But for me, I'm always about pushing things forward and I'm really excited mm -hmm. to be involved on your next one. And uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like while um, next year, it could take a little while, but I'm, I'm excited to see whatever you want to share along the way. I'll be excited to see it because I, I love the character. Oh, good. I, I will probably send you some uh, some do not share images uh, because I do love to share the stuff that I'm working on. But I feel like if you let it out into the general public and then something gets deleted, then with short films is better. Just wait till the short film's done whenever that is yeah. and just release the short. Like, I mean, if you're doing yeah. like fucking J.J. Abrams, like the Star Wars relaunch, then yeah, maybe a year ahead of time, you got to tease some stuff. But with short yeah. films, I just feel like the final product speaks for itself. Yeah. Although if Vanity Fair wanted to come over and do a shoot, I would you, definitely you would let them in, let them into your humble abode. Do some leaks. Yeah. But yeah, well, like Hobo with the high kick, we released a teaser image of Hobo. I think a day or two before the film and on the day of the film we release the full poster along with the film but it's like it's a short and it's youtube so just boom just uh just put it out there and let people you know enjoy it or chop it up or, wh or whatever they feel like doing i must have been off twitter that day because i am still anxiously awaiting hobo with the high kick oh shit yeah well i'll, I'll send it to you after, <laughs> okay, after we great. finish recording um yeah i'll great. send you especially because tony uh stella went crazy with these two posters that just are absolutely stunning well, since we've mentioned Japanese animation, let's start dipping our toes into the subject at hand. Um, in the past, I've done some of these episodes where we do like a Japanese animation double feature. And today we're going to be talking about Mamoru Oshii, if I'm saying that correctly. Still alive, born in 1951. And he's done live action. He's done animated movies. He's done manga. He's done screenplays. He's an incredibly prolific artist. And mm -hmm. in an interesting way, very heavily influenced by and inspired by... A lot of European filmmakers. He loves Chris Marker's La Jete, but loves Fellini, Bergman, Antonioni, Jean-Pierre Melville. I mean, a lot of directors that I really like are Godard and Tarkovsky. And you can see how he's got, this is not <laughs> a guy, yeah, he's not a guy who grew up just consuming like manga. He's got a, a very worldly right. sensibility, but he's created and directed some of the most iconic Japanese animated movies ever made.
And we're going to be talking today about Angel's Egg from 1985, which is still inspiring filmmakers, in particular gamers. Like Dark Souls 3 uses, like, is leans upon it heavily with one of their major expansion packs for uh, The Ring oh. City. And we're going to be talking about Ghost in the Shell. The classic. Yeah, probably the second most influential Japanese animated movie ever behind Akira and obviously inspired mm-hmm. the Wachowskis. Uh, it had a live action remake, which I did not see starring ScarJo, but clearly it's something Yo, that is still in people's brains. I started watching that on a plane. Cause when I get on a plane, I'm like, Ooh, it's time to watch some shit that my wife would never, ever watch no matter what for free. And I made it about 20 minutes in and I was like, there is better garbage available yeah. on this plane right now. I just now. don't get live action, like shot for shot remakes. Whether you're talking about like the Disney live action remake of Lion King. I know it made a billion dollars. I didn't see it. Like if you love something that much, then go and make something in the spirit of that that might potentially make a new generation fall in love with that. I, I just don't get this idea of like this complete and total creative bankruptcy and stagnation we're like yeah we're not going to do anything apart from just slightly change the medium from like and like from cell animation to live action but otherwise it's gonna be totally the same it's like well then why even make the movie it's like (laughs) it completely defeats the whole purpose because when this guy oshi adapts something he makes all kinds of changes ghost in the shell the movie Mm -hmm. is wildly different in approach and tone to the manga i bought the first uh, manga the first big giant collection Mm-hmm. And it's much more like playful and humorous and kind of silly. And the character is a little younger looking, but it's very different. You can tell Oshi took that as like the spine of a story and then went off and did his own thing. Yeah. And I think that's a really, I mean, dude knows his medium, right? Yeah. Because it's like, it's, it's maybe an hour and a half feature. Sure. Even shorter um, than that. I mean, both of these movies that... are incredibly short. Yeah. And I like it was only on the last viewing in prep for this podcast that I realized that Ghost in the Shell is like, it's like a 36 hour event. And like, it is, it is absolutely just a glimpse into these characters lives yeah. rather than, and I, cause I always, it always felt to me like this huge sprawling epic and everything was of the utmost importance, but it's kind of not like, yeah, it's got two fight scenes or like, Two and a half. Yeah, actually, you got the the opening mission. You got the fight with the guy with the stealth technology. And you got the fight with the tank, mm-hmm. but not a lot of action. Pretty simple story. And at by the end, you get like the birth of a new life form. But what's funny is that like, yeah. this is one of those movies that when it came out, I saw it so many times in a state of altered consciousness. It took me <laughs> like twenty years to finally figure out what the fucking story even was. Like I would I would fall in love with certain scenes yeah. and images and moments, but I really someone had someone had put a gun to my head before yesterday and said, "What is the plot of Ghost in the Shell?" I'm like, ah, now yeah, actually, yeah, man. I, I finally watched it sober with clear eyes, and I feel like I've got mm-hmm. a pretty good handle on the plot. But I don't <laughs> want to get the cart in front of the horse. Let's go back earlier. Okay. Angel's Egg, 1985, is a remarkable movie. But what do you know oh. about his career prior to that? Like, what, what, what? what any, do you have any info about just his, um, his background, how he kind of came up through the ranks? Because none of these directors sp- spawn in a vacuum. Typically, right. they sharpen their teeth on like doing hundreds of episodes on a particular show, so on and so forth. Like, what do you know about Oshii's beginnings? So I didn't learn about any of his professional history before that point. What I learned about was his personal life, like 
at the moment of Angel's egg, which I think is really telling. Um, and so what I saw on a, a very nice YouTube video about Angel's egg was that Oshi um, had considered going into the seminary, was yeah. like ve- was very Christian, and then shortly before Angel's egg had lost his faith in Christianity. And like thinking about that, uh, it was after I saw the movie, and then I had to go back and review because Angel's Egg is just chock full of Christian mythology and themes. Yeah. And and just rich with symbolism. Holy guacamole. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I <laughs> that's that's what I know about him. Well, the only the big thing I wanted to call attention to is that he's technically the director of the very first OVA. And for people who don't know what OVA means, it means original video animation and what's cool about Japanese animation in the 80s is that these were movies that weren't made for TV. They weren't made for the theater. They were made for video format. You put them in the store and let people rent them and buy them. And it spawned, that whole sp- that format spawned all mm-hmm. kinds of astonishingly good feature films in the 1980s. And I love how, like, you know, straight to video in America was such an insult. Like, oh, it's some straight to video piece of shit. But in the world right. of animation in Japan, Straight to Video was like a badge of honor in a lot of ways. And, so, and right. it was responsible yeah. for some of the best movies of that period. Well, it's like uh, when you say direct to consumer, that sounds, you know, a, a, a bit more dignified than direct to video. Yeah, um, it's like comic book shops. Like they're, they're like when they created like the direct market. It's like, yeah, you're, right. just, you're yeah, just trying yeah. to re- reduce the number of barriers between the consumer and and whatever art they might be consuming. But I have not seen the movie Dallas or Dallas, D-A-L-L-O-S. It's a science fiction OVA, but that is technically the very first ever. So let's just dive right into fucking Angel's Eggs. So okay. ordinarily I say, hey, so well, for people out there who have not seen this movie, like, what's, what's the plot of such and such? And my guest is like, oh, well, it's about this, this, and this. Right. But this time it's a little more difficult, so I'm going to smack the ball to your side of the court. What is the plot of Angel's Egg for people out there who have not seen it? The plot of Angel's Egg does not in any way illustrate the wonder of the film. But as far as I can tell, the plot is there's a girl in this nearly abandoned town who's caring for an egg obsessively and collecting water even though it's raining. There's water fucking everywhere all the time. And... Then she happens to meet what I read as a soldier. Neither of them know who they are or what they are doing. Eventually, the soldier breaks her egg. The town that they live in floods. And then you see a statue of the girl on what I read as a physical embodiment of God. (laughs) I think that's fair. I mean, I couldn't even be someone said you got i'll give you a million dollars if you can sum up the plot of the film in 25 words or less it's not it's not possible and the film does not even make the slightest smallest concession towards kind of narrative conventions this is a film about emotions this is a film about like religious awe this is a film about mystery it's about abstract ideas and there's all sorts of symbiology within the film, and it's been inspiring mm-hmm. people ever since. And I think because it's so mysterious and it's so opaque and it's so 
Like almost like willfully abstract in so many ways. I think that's what keeps people coming back to it because it's so haunting and it's so melancholy. It's almost disturbing. You almost get the sense that you're either seeing the very end of a very old universe or the beginning of a, perhaps a very young one. It's just, Mm -hmm. you get the sense of like ages coming and going. And I I just was transfixed by it. And also, even if you don't know what the hell's happening, it's so stunningly beautiful and so exquisitely drawn. Just the close-ups of this girl with her hair flowing around. They must've had like a hundred people drawing all these little, all these little individual strands because like that, like no shortcuts were used there. That, that the hair was right. unreal. Yeah. Oh man. And it, like, I, I, I started texting, uh, Moody who for listeners who don't know, Nathan Moody did the sound design and the motion on dead astronaut. And so we're kind of creative partners now. So I was texting him about angel's egg as I was watching it and I was struggling to, to describe it and i i just i said i want to i want to say it is mercilessly slow and he said oh say glacial and I, okay yes it is glacially paced there are a few scenes here where it's like the camera just lingers and the characters just sit there and sit there and, sit, and they're completely totally still as the music yeah. plays but what it reminded me of was sitting in a like a cathedral and listening yeah. to a choir everything's still and motionless but you're still it just you feel very small before the majesty of the beauty in front of you. Absolutely, yeah. That there's a shot in particular that I think we're both thinking of, where the girl's falling asleep, the soldier is sitting near her, yep, and th- and they are still for like a full minute. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, oh, did it freeze? And like, is the soundtrack still going? Nope. Like that. That's it is <laughs> nope. animated. They're just still. But we should also mention that uh, Yoshitaka Amano collaborated on this film. And for people who follow gaming, he did the all those gorgeous covers for all the Final Fantasy games, where you're like oh. you see these covers and you think, oh. Is the game gonna look like that? Nope, not at all. <laughs> but, but that's the, but that's the the art they went with to promote it. So, but he is a visionary artist in his own right. So you've got these two wildly different sensibilities colliding, and yeah. I don't know how they regard their collaboration. You know, looking back, but it's, sometimes it's really interesting to see what what will happen if you get two distinctly different artists working together and kind of wrestling wrestling with each other over what the final product is going to resemble. Yeah, well, in this case, it was a, a masterpiece. I like I, <laughs> I just I. This has been it's been so inspiring and like, um, I'm I'm used to um, storytelling through instrumental music, um, and and so these these end up being these eight, ten, twelve, twenty minute stories with no words and i think that really helped me connect with angel's egg yeah the movie's got movements much like a symphonic piece of music yeah and it just like the other thing that really stuck me um and i might be using some of these words wrong because i want i want to call i want to say it has like a lovecraftian horror element to it well those tanks these tanks arrive and they're almost moved up like a a conveyor (laughs) belt but they're like like either tanks or cannons or a combination of the two and when this knight or soldier or warrior hops down from one it's got these like flat the tubes of the machinery are like pulsing and thrashing like arteries like and you're like yeah are these alive or what the hell is going on i i absolutely read that as alive 
Yeah, hundred um, percent. But that's and, the last time we even see those things. Like you never yeah. see them ever again. Like oh, nope. they're not trying to introduce some new subplot. It's just no. an image, and now they're gone. And I, I am, I am all for movies dropping you into an unfamiliar world and not telling you there's the zero hand holding i mean people are probably tired of me talking about dark souls <laughs> on this podcast but that <laughs> franchise is notorious for zero hand holding and having mm-hmm. very opaque almost willfully mysterious storytelling we're like what the fuck is going on in this game like it's hard as hell yeah and i have no idea what's happening like Aah! but like this movie it's like no we're not going to hold your hand at all we're going to create symbols right. and you can interpret them as you like but like you mentioned how her egg gets broken at the end dark souls 3 the very end of the franchise before you fight the final boss in the game you meet this woman who looks just like the woman in angel's egg she's uh-huh. holding an egg and you go into a cutscene, and you lean forward and you touch the egg and then it flashes forward you don't know how many millennia to the mm-hmm. end of time itself everything is rendered into complete and total ash and you're fighting basically like the last living person in the universe. And uh-huh. so this character of Filianor is very directly lifted from Angel's Egg. Yeah. And so I thought it was so interesting how the most you know, difficult to understand <laughs> gaming franchise is so directly linked and inspired by uh, to Angel's Egg from 1985. Hell yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I want to, this is one of my big notes. Uh, so I got to go back to it. Um, so I haven't read a bunch of Lovecraft, but I recently saw uh, Color Out of Space and um, I, I read a little bit about his stories and Watch the documentary, the um, – oh, what the hell is it? Not called The Sound of Fear. What the hell is it called? I'm totally blanking. Lovecraft Doc. Uh, due to Fear of the Unknown from 2008. It's fucking okay. awesome. I've seen it like six times now, but you got like Neil Gaiman and Guillermo del Toro and all these people, and they're talking about okay. Lovecraft's work. And uh, it is the true, and Stuart Gordon, it is the true deep dive into his life and his stories. I, I love Lovecraft right. stories, but um, yeah. yeah, if you're just looking for a 90-minute distraction, Lovecraft, Fear <laughs> the Unknown, you'll love it. So the, uh, sort of the the last element of fear, I think, like there's there's everything you can fear, you know, monsters, violence, weather, whatever, like sort of the last thing you can fear is losing your mind. Right. And that's like that starts eating people up in color out of space. And I feel like the the girl and the soldier, uh, I feel their fear because they can't remember who they are. They keep asking each other, who are you? And like that just it was 71 minutes of that very dread pushing into me. Along with all this aquatic imagery, yeah. and she's and stuff carrying like an egg, that. and she doesn't know why. He's like, "Well, you kind of got to break something to see what's inside it." And she's like, "Well, I'd rather right. hold on to it and like hope for the best." And yeah, I yeah. saw some people interpret it as a discussion of faith, and that some people say it's better mm-hmm. to have a life of faith that gives you something to hang on to and inspire you, even if what you have faith in is not real in the long run. And then you have like the, mm-hmm. the, the gritty pragmatists. It's like, no, I want to know. Like, is there a God? Is there whatever? And so you have like these two warring ideologies over what to do with this egg. And obviously in the end, you know, she goes to sleep and the guy smashes the egg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's not his first opportunity to do so. Yeah. So he was thinking about it for, for who knows how long. We, I, there's no way to tell how long they've been 
Yeah, they could have been walking around for eons. Like this is like a movie that feels like you said it's like glacially paced. It's like mythologically paced, where just <laughs> you sure, don't quite yeah. know. There's no concept of time. There's no concept of even where the hell they are. Like the for one of the opening shots, this giant, enormous spaceship comes lands on this what looks like an, like an endless chessboard, and they yeah. never see that chessboard ever again. It's like, well, where the where the fuck was that thing landing? Where are we? Are we on the ship? Are we not? Like you never know where you are. <laughs> you have no sense of the, like the real estate. It's yeah. so fucking strange, and you feel so completely, I guess, like unmortared to any yeah. sort of traditional storytelling as it it's starts to unfold. Absolutely on edge. So, uh, what did you edge. make of the probably the most, I guess, action-packed sequence where the the spaceship is quite literally covered with and filled with just thousands of these automatons, these statues. And every once in a while, these statues completely lose their... It's like dogs or cats when they see a laser pointer. They lose their minds because they see the shadows of these um, ancient fish from the Cretaceous period. They're called the coalescent fish or Latimeria. Coelacanth. Coelacanth fish. And, but all you see are these shadows going around buildings and down the streets. And these automatons... Just go berserk, throw in harpoons like into the yeah. cobblestones and through windows. You know, never totally, completely ineffectual. But it, I guess if you were trying to like interpret things, you could say, oh, they're like a symbol of like the ineffectual like actions of people while they're alive, and how in the in the grand scheme of things, over eons, all of our actions really amount to nothing in the grand scheme of things. But how how did you interpret the uh, the harpooners? So crazy thing. Um... I did not look up what kind of fish that was, but it, now that you say coelacanth, I, I think that's that's accurate. Um, that fish was long thought to be extinct, and then somebody fucking caught one yeah. in like uh, the mid seventies or something. Yeah. yeah, so that was like newly like oh this thing came back from extinction um, at the time this film was made, which the way that feels to me is that these. I, I thought they were soldiers before I, I could see the harpoons. But so anyway, fishermen, um, it, it kind of feels like that represents a group of people who have nothing left but a misplaced faith. And you can say that's that can represent a misplaced faith in anything, any hero, a religion, a parent, whatever it is. Political ideology, like you name it. Yeah. 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 And they are just, all they have left is trying to catch this fish. That's a fucking shadow. It's a phantom fish. (laughs) And that's just, it's just a little like vignette of like some, uh, a, 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 a horrible fate. Yeah, it's like one of those when you hear about like certain myths from Greek mythology, like oh, you're for the rest of eternity, you got to push this rock up the hill, and whenever you yeah, get yeah. to the top, it's going to roll back down, and that's your yeah, fate exactly. forever. Yeah. It's it's a horrible a fate worse than death. Yeah, that's... it's remarkable stuff because it's a movie that's so still and so calm, and yet periodically thousands of automatons would just go berserk hurling yeah. these harpoons but there's no blood there's no death there's no like you know, people are yeah. used to watching japanese animation and seeing some pretty ruthless spectacular <laughs> violence but it doesn't yeah. allow you to have that payoff no yeah it it kind of keeps you it keeps you stuck in the, the same place that the soldier and the and the girl are well uh, i thought the most uh, i guess visually 
exciting or the, the part that excited my imagination the most is when they're discovering or analyzing this fossilized skeleton. And it's like, they keep calling it a bird, but it, could it be an angel? And of course I was thinking angel because the movie is called angels egg. And I was like, Oh, is right. she carrying this egg and it's going to bring this species back. But once again, as, as it's the case with every single scene in this movie, there's no answer. So how did you right. interpret that, uh, that particular scene? Cause like the music is just like so operatic and just swells and builds like, Oh, okay. Finally, they're going to, like have a, a big exposition <laughs> sequence and the whole story is going to make sense. But like, nope, like we're not going to, it didn't go that fuck way. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I wrote in my notes like seven times, like, fuck you. Look at this beautiful picture for a whole minute. Well, I think or, even like, you sent me a DM or a, an email and you're like, Hey, I don't know if you've watched it yet, but you're like, you just got to let it fuck you over and over and over again. And you'll yeah. eventually love it. I was like, Oh, well, I'm already, just, I'm already in all of it. Yeah. So I watched it twice. Cause I'd never seen it before. Just, that's that's my that's my my tagline for Angel's Egg. If if I were to re-release it on Blu-ray, it would be Angel's Egg. Open up your brain, and let it fuck you. Well, if if I suspected at all that these artists were full of shit, then I would resist. But every once in a while, you come across a mysterious work of art where I feel like it's it's on the viewer or the consumer to do the heavy lifting. And I feel mm -hmm. like some filmmakers like Antonioni or Bergman will present these films where it's not going to wash over you like an episode of the Mandalorian. It's fun when a story washes over you, but sometimes you got to put on your big boy pants, drink your espresso and try to figure something out. And so this is a movie that's very deliberately, very willfully putting the work in the lap of the, of the viewer and making them form their own narrative. As, as far as we can see it, it is utterly uncompromising. Yeah. And I think it lost pretty much every single like dollar that was invested in it. But, <laughs> it had to have, right? but it's been inspiring game designers and inspiring animators and inspiring manga artists ever since. So I think it's one of those things where like some comedians never reach the heights of great success, but they become like the comedian's comedian where comedians like them, but the audience mm -hmm. doesn't respond to them. I think this is one of the things yeah. where the great animators realize, ooh, Angel's Egg. That's somewhere. That's an example where they really went for it, and it's not going to happen all that often. But it's something like a like Belladonna of sadness. Like every once in a while, you get a major animated movie that uh, where its reach is for real. Yeah, I um, I so since it's not readily available. Uh, Although there, on... there's a version on YouTube. There's one video that there's one version that's terrible and it's got a million views and it's got really low resolution. Yeah. And yeah. there's one that's got like 70,000 views that looks pretty goddamn good. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, I, I've never done this before, but I, I, I searched for the, how to download YouTube videos. Yeah. I stole it as and, well. <laughs> yeah. I, I just like, I can't risk not being able to watch Angel's Egg again someday. Yeah. And I also can't afford $600 or whatever for the DVD. Um, yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies that should probably like be like an installation at the MoMA, just playing on a loop yeah. all day, every day, where people wandering through can walk in, watch five minutes or 50 minutes, or however much of it as they want, or continue on their way. But it's not meant to be like, Vampire Hunter D. It's not meant to be like Wicked City where it's like, woo, or Ninja Scroll, like one of these movies where you sit down and you're just like having like a blast from start to finish. Yeah. It wants yeah. to stimulate the intellect and possibly make you question your own spirituality, whatever the case might be. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, it's got balls of steel that it just goes for it. And by the end, yeah, but at the, at the very end of the movie, I just, I just sat there for like a good 20 or 30 seconds like, huh, what the hell? 
hell's that supposed to mean? Right. <laughs> and and the second and well, the second time through, it was less perplexing, but still remained equally mysterious. Yeah. And I, I think we can both rest a little easier knowing that Oshi said that he doesn't know what it's about. Um, I, I'm sure everyone it's involved... It's about 70 minutes. That's what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everyone involved has ideas about what certain parts of it represent. But um, actually, one of, one of the things that really struck me about this is that it does seem like... Uh, it seems like a collection of ideas uh, it's a cohesive collection but it's it seems like a bunch of little things put together to to form this new world rather than you know a, a linear narrative uh, a, a problem solution any of that but it's almost like a spaceship found this on some foreign world and it, this is like art <laughs> like a completely different civilization with values and traditions that are totally alien to us and now right. we're like trying to like solve this rubik's cube like oh my god i didn't even know you could like tell stories like this because it doesn't feel yeah. like an act like there are plenty of people who would try to tell non-linear stories and they just feel like a total bullshit artist never at any moment they feel like oh these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing it felt like an, an incredibly right. powerful work of art made with a great purpose even if they don't fully understand the meaning themselves yeah the the confidence it takes to to take the risks that this movie takes is it's almost unfathomable like i don't know how they got the money to do this like i can't imagine any person or group being like yes we'll get behind this it'd be fucking... like if kubrick when he made 2001 just made like two hours of like the last 30 minutes of like all the shit going through space. Right. And then he's yeah, just like, yeah. wait, wait a second, where's the story? And he's like, well, there it is. Like it'd be, it just the, like the, the complicated part. <laughs> it'd be like if Kubrick had just made two hours of that, that's, that's the equivalent of angel's yeah. egg. I, I definitely thought about 2001 a bunch while watching it largely because of the oppressive silence. Yeah. But when um, there's music, it's, awe-inspiring like the music it, it eases in and it just it, it, raise, it raises goosebumps on your arms well i had i had a note right in the beginning i'm, I'm notating everything because i don't know what what the big points are going to be and like my my first music note was like oh really really traditional anime music like some strings monophonic piano lines and then you get deeper into the story and it's just like that horror choir. And I was like, okay, this isn't like other stuff. Period. Yeah, no, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. It stands alone in the world of animation. At least uh, in my, I've been watching animation my entire life and I've seen quite a few. I mean, this one of the things with Japanese animation, it's like watching like Italian horror films. You can watch a thousand of them and barely have scratched the surface. There's just always more and more and more to watch. Yeah. And so the same thing holds true with Japanese animation, all the shows and all the movies. But the good ones are 100% worth hunting down. And I think this one definitely, if you wanted to... It's like when that game Shadow of Colossus came out on PS2 in the early 2000s. Like, oh my god, like here's a game that's trying to aspire to high art, not just a great gaming experience. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is one of those examples where Japanese animation decided to let all the genre tropes and or traditional storylines just let them slide and do something yeah. completely groundbreaking and original, unlike anything that's come before. Yeah, and I'm so grateful it happened <laughs> now for you as an animator when you watch this do you start thinking like oh shit like i gotta up my game or or i'm gonna steal this or like, what well, how, how do you respond oh, to it when it comes oh, to your man. own storytelling 
I I always feel like I have to up my game, and and, and these days I feel that in the best possible sense, um, you know. But uh, there are, I have a sequence written, and I've started storyboarding it and sort of sort of workshopping solutions to get it made, um, and it's going to be about twice as long as I've <laughs> initially imagined. The so the first dead astronaut was intended to be sort of an exclamation point on my portfolio, supposed to be quick, all you know, all bite, no bark. Um, the second one, all it has to be is a great movie, so I can I can push all I can push the pacing, whatever, whatever I want to really expand on, I get to do it. And Angel's Egg said, as far as you thought you were going to go, you can go farther and you probably won't go as far as we did. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> there are very few films, live action or animated, that ever have this kind of ambition or at least uh, not ambition in terms of like the scope and the production and the expense. I can't imagine it's a terribly expensive movie to make, but just to take audiences places where they've never been before and so few movies are willing to do so. Yeah. Absolutely.
righty. Well, let's move on to the next flick, a movie that we actually mentioned years ago when Wrong Reel was first getting started. I can't remember why. We used to, like, when, the, when the podcast first got started, we did this format where we'd see a new release and one person on the show would then pick an older movie to pair it with. And for mm-hmm. some reason, either in late 2014 or early 2015, we paired Ghost in the Shell maybe with, I think it was for our, our, an episode about Ex Machina, if memory serves okay. correctly. And we threw that in there and because it seemed like thematically relevant. But that was... Mm-hmm five and a half years ago. And I don't even remember what we said or if we said anything even remotely intelligible, but Ghost in the Shell <laughs> is one of the most groundbreaking, beloved animated movies ever made. It's extraordinary influential. And I can remember when it came out in 1996 in America, it felt like an event. I'd just gotten into uh, watching anime like the year before. Oh, and you mentioned before we started recording, you wanted to, to, to talk about this. And maybe now's the time to do so. The way I really got into anime was around 1994, 1995, suddenly there was always a section at every video store, Blockbuster or Mom and Pop, didn't matter, of anime. And it was the mm-hmm. same movies everywhere you went. It was yeah. like Crying Freeman and Vampire Hunter D and Akira and Wicked City and just a handful of... Robotech. Yeah, and I watched them all and just fucking loved them. And so I was about a year or two deep into that when suddenly Ghost in the Shell came out and yeah. it got a, a pretty big marketing push. Like in, if you went to like Suncoast Video Store or any of these places that used to exist in malls, there was always like yeah. a big display with a shitload of cassettes with like a quote by James Cameron about how powerful this movie was. Mm-hmm. And I threw it in and it blew me away and I was yeah. totally bewildered by it because I was just so drug addled I couldn't follow any story of any kind. <laughs> and I've been watching it now for 24 years and every time I come back to it, I fall in love with it all over again. Yeah, you can't. You can't not like. <laughs> well, I think um, any movie that opens strong and ends strong, you're in good hands. Especially if a movie's short, you start yeah. with this killer mission where Motako takes out this guy and then escapes, and you go into this eerie, bone-chilling music with these kids singing as she's being restored and repainted over and like fixed and modified. It's like this incredible rebirth sequence, which mixes sex and erotica and technology. And then you have this incredible battle royale at the end versus this tank where she and the puppet master end up merging into a single entity. And it's like, yeah, so right, you're, you're starting in a, in a, from a place of strength with an awesome beginning and an awesome ending. And everything that happens in the middle is almost kind of immaterial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't need it to enjoy the movie. Like, I think I'm in a bit of a trap now that uh, every time I watch Ghost in the Shell, I try to figure out all the exposition that's happening in the middle. Um, yeah, all the stuff about nations and corporations and like the, the, the world building yeah. is very uh, dense. Yeah. And it's, and it's all dialogue too. Um, and it, it feels like a uh, really heavily edited dialogue to cram it into yeah. this movie. Exposition dumps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to my, my entry into anime, um, was not too far off from yours. Because um, we're roughly the same age, correct? But you're, what year were you born? 82. 82, gotcha. So you're, you're yeah. half, a, half a generation younger. Yeah, yeah. But same situation where you had a very few anime to choose from at, at Blockbuster or whatever. Apparently, I didn't know about this, but there was a much better video store in my town. And... Uh, uh, a friend who I've worked with for years was like, oh, yeah, we rented Nausicaa when I was like 10. 
There was a version of just called Warriors of the Wind, and my girlfriend in high school kept telling me I needed to watch this movie, and I was like, this sounds dumb as hell. And, <laughs> and finally, she sat me down. I was like, oh, this is amazing. It was a, it was, it was a much shorter version, but mm -hmm. it, you could see the genius, and I was mm -hmm. enthralled. But it wasn't until probably like 10 years later that I finally got to see Nausicaa Valley of the Winds in its entirety, and I was like, oh, this is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I was a big reader of Wizard Magazine. Nice. Hell yeah. So I've subscribed for many years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as I started reading that, it was like I absorbed some tertiary knowledge of Ghost in the Shell and Akira. Because um, that was just on the edges of what Wizard would, would cover and talk yeah. about and stuff like that. But I knew that uh, Ghost in the Shell and Akira were the ones to get for me, you know, little teenager in Wisconsin. But we lived way outside of town. So not only did I need to figure out how to get to the mall, I had to save up 25 bucks or whatever it was. Um, and then I had to be there unsupervised so I could fucking buy this R-rated yeah, movie. Because the poster is, it shows that there's going to be some titillation, quite literal yeah. titillation scattered yeah. throughout this movie. I mean, they're probably the best animated titties that I've ever seen but what confuses <laughs> you is that they're in the context oftentimes of like a robot creature creature who's got like its arms and legs torn off and you're like you're yeah. getting like these mixed feelings of like revulsion to what's happened to the creature but while you're aroused by like the jiggling perfectly pink nipples it's like they very deliberately are trying to fuck with you yeah so actually I, I wanted to talk about them boobies um because obviously when I saw it as a kid, I was like, oh, yes, titties. Yeah. Um, and then action. And then so on this last watch, I was like, so this is there's a lot of boobs in this, but it actually seems really chaste. Like like you said, because it's these robots, they're in a they're off they're in a lab or like the major is tearing herself apart, fighting a tank or whatever. And it's like that at 38 hit a little bit different of like it, the inhumanity of these robot characters like hit a lot harder in that like they don't give a shit if their tits are out yeah they're completely it's like they're not even a, sure like if a, they're car, a car doesn't mind having like its headlights exposed or something like that it's that's right. about as, as as attached as they are to the physical form and yeah. they're so otherworldly they're so doll like they very deliberately yeah. uh wouldn't have the dolls or these uh these cyborg creatures blink because they wanted them to see seem completely oh, yeah. totally synthetic in a lot of ways yeah. and so yeah I, when i watch this movie i don't get turned on but at the right. same time, it's like uh, like Larry David pointed out in Curb Your Enthusiasm, when he's like, "Look, you can be watching like you know seventh game in the World Series, and it's tied in the final inning, and like bases are loaded, and then there's a girl like on, like ten rows down, and she shows her tits. You're gonna look at her tits, like you know, it's like you know, it's just, <laughs> just the way it goes. So like, but because this movie does have perfectly animated, like exquisitely rendered boobs, you can't help but be fascinated, but it's not like an, an overall erotic effect. Yeah, yeah. And nobody else in the movie gives a shit about the boobs either. Yeah. And so when I, uh, I was also thinking like, well, do their, do their boobs have to be that perfect? Like this is, this is a little like, uh, you know, uh, uh, titillating or, or, I'm, I can't think of the right word. But then it's like, well, of course, if you're going to design a robot woman, you're going to give her an amazing rack. 
Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> see at the beginning when she's basically getting restored in that like that soup, and it's like a mix of femininity and muscularity. And a lot of people ha- have hypothesized that the major might not even actually be a woman. Like it could have been a man at some point a long time ago, but because she doesn't even know if her ghost and her memories are actually hers. Like that's a I big part of the story that. is to start meeting people who have had their brains essentially wiped clean and memories and experiences and relationships that might not even exist inserted into them. So there's yeah. a lot of, it's, it's a lot like, like, you know, with like Blade Runner it is, mm-hmm. is Deckard or is her Deckard not a replicant? And obviously the sequel made the mistake of dispelling <laughs> some of the illusion and spelling things out. And that's what makes things yeah. interesting is when they're not spelled out and allows speculation to occur. But I think that's part of the, like, yeah. what makes this movie so interesting is we don't really know who major Motoko or Motako is or where they came from, but they're on this journey. And mm-hmm. part of this journey is uh, basically creating a brand new life form. Yeah. And actually, uh, I'm pretty sure I had the last issue of that storyline in the manga. And so in the end of the movie, she gets a new body. It's like a little girl body. And in the comic, it looks like this fully grown woman. But then she says something to the bateau about how she has a penis. Like he got her, he got her a, like a hermaphrodite or I'm not, I'm not sure what you call a robot body that has a woman top and a wiener. Yeah. I have to come up with a new term because that's uh that's something that, that right now, I mean, who knows, maybe there's like some like, you know, sex doll factory in Amsterdam. They'll make you, make you a custom doll precisely to those uh, specifications. But I, I don't know what the proper term is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I know plenty of trans people and I know what to call all of them, but I've never met a robot with its parts. Well, mixed up this, like in that. That this movie is all about the birth of a new life form. You just wait for yeah. them to say Holy themselves shit. like yeah, you can exactly. address me as such and such. Yeah. Well, I think it was probably a good call in the movie to just go with a, a, a little girl's body. That's that's jarring enough yeah. for the for the cinema audience. Um Especially after watching her, as you mentioned before, quite literally tearing herself apart. It's a weird thing where her, her outfit, she's she wears clothes throughout the movie, but her clothes make her appear naked. So you're like, well, yeah. what what is going on here? And so, But as she's pulling on the hatch of this tank, you see her outfit ripping, and then you see the skin underneath. Like, oh, that's the skin. That's the outfit. They're slightly yeah, yeah. different. But that's <laughs> yeah. one of the most remarkable scenes I've ever seen in animation where she's pulling. And, of course, you're thinking, oh, okay, she's such a badass. She's going to rip the hatch off, and she's going to just fuck this thing up. And you start seeing all the muscles, like, bulging and flexing. But sure enough, they just start ripping and tearing and popping. Yeah. And finally, her whole body just, like, explodes from the effort. It's just terrifying and it's yeah. completely the opposite of what you're expecting to happen yeah that that scene has also been really in like i identified with it even as a kid um just from like i i wrestled in middle school and then there's been a bunch of other times in the past where you're doing something physical um and you're like okay i can push harder I might hurt myself. And then you're like, you push a little harder and you're like, okay, if I push harder, I'm definitely going to hurt myself. I'm going to explode my Achilles tendon. And sometimes you fucking go for it. Like I definitely have gone for it a few times, like uh, moving a drill press or something like that. Like, okay, I either die here or get hurt a little bit. Um, And she, they're so detached from their bodies, like all the androids in, in Ghost in the Shell that she doesn't think twice. She's just, Waits for the tank to run out of ammo. Is like, I'm gonna try to tear this fucker apart. Yeah, she <laughs> goes for it. 
And the way she moves, what I love about the way she moves, she appears to be totally weightless. I mean, she's so dexterous. She can leap so far. She's so acrobatic. But every time she lands on something, it like crunches and crunches. Like, oh, like she weighs like a thousand pounds. She's like a thousand yeah. pounds of metal, but with enormous power and explosiveness. But yeah. I love that contrast where she moves like a ballerina, but weighs as much as like a fucking car. And that's just yeah. so goddamn cool. But yeah, when yeah. you're when it comes to like how they have zero regard for their bodies. Like we have that one exquisitely new, beautiful nude blonde girl who gets run over by a truck and they're basically like jolting her back to life. And we learn that the puppet master is kind of tucked away inside. So you've got <laughs> this beautiful girl with no arms or legs. Like she looks like she's been like, like the victim of like the Texas chainsaw massacre, but she's got these awesome titties. And you're like, how do I, how am I supposed to react to this? <laughs> and you're, but it, no, no, no technician, no lab rat, no character in the room even acknowledges the fact that the, the the character's naked and they're just having all these conversations about how from like the like the age of information itself, from this membrane of digital information that this new ghost or this new personality has emerged with no previous origin. And so it's introducing all these incredible concepts. Yeah. And uh, just for a, a fun little note, um, last time I watched, I put the subtitles on and... Uh, uh, when they're shocking that that droid back to life, uh, the the uh, and she's like seizuring or whatever. The the subtitle says something like wet groaning and spasms or something. Oh, like the description of the sound was so much worse than the sound itself. And I was like, good joke on me, subtitle people. Yeah, I mean, this movie pulls no punches. I mean, probably one of the most hardcore scenes is when she goes up against this guy who's using, like, stealth technology and these incredible, what, there's high-velocity bullets. I Means he's hell on wheels. He's not to be trifled yeah. with. But when she starts fighting him, she's, like, shredding his ankles, shredding his wrists. Like, she's not just knocking him out or, like, rendering or incapacitating him. She's completely rendering his body incapable of ever causing harm or moving ever again and yeah. the way she just dismantles them it's like almost like a like a it's almost like you're like strapped to like a like a slab and a surgeon mm. is going through with a scalpel and like cutting every tendon that you would ever need to make your body move yeah i definitely thought of, of uh frank miller's dark knight fighting the the boss of the mutants oh yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. and they're and they're both in the water i'm like um yeah, he's yeah. like you're my patient. I'm it's the surgeon. Like my mind tells me to stop yeah, with, the, with like the with the leg, but I don't. Yeah, it's I just like listen. that's Frank Miller yeah. at his most vicious and cruel. Uh, yeah. Or when like <laughs> earlier, he's like, there's like five workable positions from this, but from this position, like three of them incapacitate, one cripples, like we or one kills and one hurts and he hurts. Poof, and does like the <laughs> yeah. spinning back kick and breaks the guy's back and he's like you're young you'll yeah. probably walk again but you'll stay scared won't you punk i mean yeah it's oh. it's so goddamn good i read the dark Knight could... returns a thousand times as a kid yeah i i'm and I, I started reading that book around that same time too um as as watching anime um yeah it was a good time i mean because frank miller was into like japanese art and he did things like ronin and he was incorporating yeah. all this like cool ninja stuff into the pages of daredevil and so yeah frank miller in the 80s was definitely he wasn't trying to recreate manga but you could tell he loved things like lone wolf and cub and was inspired by that style of storytelling yeah absolutely i mean and uh, thoughts on frank miller are varied 
But uh, well, his, yeah, his I mean, work is so uneven. But when he's on, it's yeah. irresistible. Yeah, and I mean that's, I think that's all great artists are are able to synthesize influences, and without ripping anybody off. And hopefully, uh, as I learn more about anime, I can see it in in that world too, specifically, rather than just when it comes over to the states. Also, it's like I feel like I wish more like filmmakers and animators would be inspired by anime, but not do this idiotic thing where they just do a live action remake of Ghost in the Shell. Like yeah. adapt yeah. the ideas and the sensibility and the risk taking. And like when you watch a movie that's like just overflowing with so many original ideas, and then you watch some American animated movie that doesn't have a single original idea from start to finish, and it just makes American animation feel like it's standing still <laughs> and totally risk averse. So I wish yeah. people would steal that devil may care, fuck it attitude of a lot of Japanese. And obviously, lots and lots of Japanese animation gets made, and not all of it is remotely as good as Ghost in the Shell. But when you see something as original as this, it just makes you think of, well, goddamn, do I really want to watch something as fucking stupid as like the latest Pixar movie? Or can I just watch Ghost in the Shell the rest of my life? I've, um, even, even that, uh, the more, I can't think of a kinder word than consumer grade, uh, anime series, like the stuff that's regularly imported. Um, I was talking to a cousin of mine who's like 21. So totally different generation. And I mentioned that I was watching these movies in prep and he was like, I am really into anime right now. And it was all stuff I'd never heard of. It was like TV series. From like and the he's last like, five or six years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he's like, well, of course I started on Pokemon. And he, I was like, okay, so what do you love about this this anime that you love? And he's just like, I just feel like the storytelling is so different and it's it's just incredible that i mean that's fair like my layered. first exposure to japanese storytelling would have been voltron as a little kid and voltron uh -huh. was i think for a lot of people their first I mean, whether that or speed racer or whatever the case might be but it i was acutely aware even though i didn't know it was from japan that i was watching something mm -hmm. quite different it felt yeah. different from thundercats it felt different from he-man it felt different from gi joe it felt totally different from everything else i could just tell that the 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 language of the storytelling was totally unique and then as I got older, I was like, oh, okay, I got it. It's from Japan. And so then you start, you start kind of like <laughs> connecting the dots. But yeah. yeah, so whatever your first exposure is, yeah, he's, he's, he's not wrong. I mean, it is completely different. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I got into Blade Runner about the same time as Ghost in the Shell, somewhere in those formative years, you know. And a lot of the times... Ghost in the Shell almost feels like a sequel to Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. yeah. The replicants um, and the cyborgs in this are very yeah. similar and also how they're kind of used up by society. And there's this right. great scene where Matoka's talking about how so much of her is been like donated by like the state and that if she ever were to retire, her augmented parts would have to be returned. And she kind yeah. of casually says, and there wouldn't be much left. I was like, oh, that's so gross. So you just be like little like fleshy parts with like no skeleton. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just it created this yeah. incredibly vivid image in my mind of what would happen if she had to return, turn over her augmented parts. But same thing right. with the replicants. They, they're trying to figure out like, well, what, what are they? Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, I, like Blade Runner, it seems to be more like, uh, uh, primal emotion, driven, like baddies just, he just says, I want more life. Yeah. Um, 
and Ghost in the Shell seems a little more detached and analytical. Like, yeah, she's like, a little skeptical. She, when she gets this pitch to merge with the puppet master, she's like, "Well, what what's going to happen to me?" And he's like, "I don't know. Like, we're, we're doing something new here. Like, I can't yeah, make you any right. promises." Yeah, yeah. It seems, and it seems like they've been they've been in this situation a it's lot. Like the end longer. of Star Trek: The Motion Picture when uh, when Viger and that blonde dude merge. I'll have to take your word on that one. Oh, you've never seen Star Trek, the motion picture no, at the very I, end Voyager six or whatever Voyager five. I can't remember. It's basically, it's gone off and it's been gone for centuries. It's become this giant, like planet sized sentient technological life form. But it, it basically wants to know what is the meaning of life and uh-huh. the crew of the, of uh, the enterprise doesn't really have an answer for it, but what right. it needs to do, it needs to evolve to the next state. And so a, uh-huh. a, one of the members of the crew volunteers to merge with it, and it essentially becomes a god. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. It's definitely the most weird and like conceptual sci-fi of all the Star Trek flicks. Yeah, wow. Um, I Since I am a, a musician, we got to talk about the score of Ghost yeah. in the Shell a little bit. Um, chorus of like 600 young girls one yeah so so before we knew about um stepping on other cultures toes in high school i used to do a pretty popular uh impression of that song oh i would love to i I hope you have a recording (laughs) of it somewhere i'd love to hear it it probably does exist somewhere it's just it's just waiting to come bite because there is a video on youtube of an actual live choir performing performing it in japan and Mm -hmm. it's wild to watch but it is it's like hundreds of screaming girls and you know with percussionists with like because he had that great like beat behind it it's so cool but watching a group perform it it blows your fucking mind i actually was lucky enough to see a live taiko performance that's the name of those drums okay and they're traditionally beaten with just two huge wooden sticks, like like about a foot long, maybe three inches in diameter, just fucking clubs. And so there was like at least five of these things on stage in a big theater and just fucking filled the room. Like as as hard as those hit on the score, it's like... It, it it doesn't come close to the physicality of a of a of an actual taiko performance. <laughs> Um, yeah, I would love to see this kind of stuff performed live, but also it's so different from any of the other scores I've heard from any other animated movies, whether you're talking about like uh Fist of the North Star, it's just yeah, it's completely totally original. And that's what I think I guess I haven't seen a lot of Oshii's work, but it seems like when he puts his best foot forward he reinvents the genre. It's like, I'm not going to fall back on anything that's been done before. I'm going to take us into new terrain. And even decades later, they still feel incredibly fresh. Yeah. Well, so I also watched Pat Labor 2 um, that we decided not to discuss explicitly. But so that one and Ghost in the Shell both have a very uh, detached sort of feel to a lot of the score um, where when you watch it, the, I feel like the music is kind of telling you like, it's always when like some, either something nasty is happening on screen or in the case of ghost in the shell, when she's just moving through the city, like you can tell she's deep in thought, but the detachment is like, it's telling the viewer like, okay, you're you're watching somebody else's story and it's fucking sad, but it is 
huge. Like, this is just a moment. Like, it's a little bit soothing, bittersweet, like, and, and very, very much, um, it's just a couple steps from a lot of that Blade Runner, that that beautiful stuff in the Blade Runner score. For me, anyway. I, I tend to read music differently than a lot of other people, but that's that that's how those scores hit me um is sort of a gentle a gentle hand that uh yep gentle hand that's i'll leave it at that the gentle hand sounds like a name of a softcore porn flick (laughs) right or or just like a really awful boxer with one eye or something absolutely well in a future short down the road dead astronaut can meet the gentle hand it could be like that planet (laughs) of eyeballs when it says like a planet nothing nothing but hands just (laughs) coming out of every crevice of the mountain well as we were talking about doing an episode we talked about doing all kinds of topics from like discussing like like x-men the animated series all the different interpretations of it to like or just like any other early 80s animated things before we wrap up, do you want to give a shout out to not necessarily animated shows or movies that have directly inspired you as an animator, but just some of your all-time faves? Like, you know what? These are the, like the foundational pillars that made me take an interest in animation. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, I was going to consult a list, but I don't have to. Um the biggest one has to be Adventure Time. Are you familiar with that show? I am unfamiliar with it. Adventure Time. What okay. What the fuck is that? No, there's no shame in that. It it absolutely looks like just a cute little children's show. And that's kind of its genius. Oh, I know this. Yeah, yeah. right? So maybe two-thirds of the episodes are just like fun, cute adventures. Like they're funny. Like there's always like a nice... Well, not always. There's oftentimes like a nice little moral message about friendship. But then the other third of the time, it is fucking cosmic horror disguised behind these cute little characters. Like there's alternate dimensions. uh, Like there's this character called the Lich whose only goal is to eliminate all life in the universe. I I like him already. Yeah, yeah, they, they tangle with him several times and just like the there's so many characters that are hiding a, a just a huge terrifying secret well you'll need to send me a link to some of your favorite episodes because I, oh, yeah yeah um i think it's still yeah it's all on hulu and i think it's on hbo max as well so it's readily available um and there there's a lot of of really gorgeous animation in it as well is it kind of one of those things like Rick and Morty where it appears kind of simple on the surface, but they completely use that as like a like a front to disguise the fact they're going to go into very strange, weird terrain? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not, I, I I'd say that like if if you started as a kid on an on Adventure Time, you would transition perfectly into Rick and Morty in gotcha. high school. I mean. I, I don't have to I don't have to speculate. That's what my kids did. Okay. Well, yeah. My my son anyway. Uh, I don't. Uh, think my, speaking of reason, I love like, the uh, when we were talking about doing this episode, and you said you already told my son that he's going to be off the internet for like this two hour window while we record, and like he had this expression <laughs> of complete shock and disbelief, and I just started howling with laughter because yeah, just as when I was a kid, you know, like 
my Nintendo didn't have to worry about being online or like, you know, right. like my, my videotapes, I didn't have to worry about being online. Like I just love the idea now, like the, in, the internet in the household is like a finite resource and yeah. it has to be used, you know, very wisely. <laughs> Yeah, like never before. Yeah, it was actually my youngest daughter. She's thirteen. Who who made the face? And uh, like, what do you mean? That's like no air or water or food. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Medieval executioner. Yeah, and I mean, I get it. It's it's dark. It's very cold. Like, there's not a shitload to do on a on a Tuesday night. Well, make them watch, uh, make, make them watch Angel's Egg on repeat. And like, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna show it to my oldest daughter. She's about to go. She's going to college next year, so yeah, okay, so she's probably ready. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she's she's an artist as well. So yeah, I feel like Ghost in the Shell. You could show to a 13 year old boy, and he'd be like, "Whoa, this is cool." But Angel yeah. Leg, they might be like, "I'm gonna kill myself." But yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got to pick the right audience for that. Absolutely. And, and I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of force feeding anything. I know a lot of times people think, "Oh, well, this movie's important to me, so I'm gonna make everybody watch it." It's like, all right, well, then you're gonna just make them hate it. Like, you know, right. just it's like yeah. expose them, introduce the idea. But if you require something. People have the best intentions when it comes to trying to shove something down people's throats, but it's the the worst way you could possibly go about it. Like recently, I showed Taxi Driver to my little brother and sister. They're 18, but I didn't say, "Hey, y'all have to watch this start from start to finish, and you better like it, or we're not friends anymore." I just right. put it on. We sat down at the end of it. My sister, who doesn't even like movies, she was like, "She was like, oh yeah, that was really good." I was like, "I don't think I've ever heard you say that about a movie before." So yeah, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you get lucky. Yeah, I did. Uh, I think it was this summer, maybe last summer. I I wanted I wanted to share Terminators one and two with my son, and so I I I was just like, hey, I know that you've mentioned you wanted to see Terminator and Terminator two, so let's give it a shot. I think we should watch Terminator just so Terminator two doesn't need to be explained. I don't think it's that great. T two is where it's at. And so, like, luckily, I, I try to space out my, like, trying to get my kids into my shit to just a, a few things and, and do it really gently. Um, and it's gone pretty well so far. Uh, yeah, like, my dad did the same thing. He would every once in a while say, hey, let's watch The Wild Bunch or, or let's watch this or let's watch that. And he still does it to, to this day. He's 70 years old. Uh-huh. But if it were every day, I'd be like, oh, this feels like work. But it's, when it's a couple times a year, then it's like really special memories that you look back on. Oh, my, my dad showed this to me and it had a huge impact on me. Yeah. I mean, and the, the other strategy uh, for when you have kids, of course, because everyone has to have children. Um, is I'm going to gonna just... <laughs> take the, uh, the majors route. I'm going to merge with a, a cybernetic, uh, you know, new life form and, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try to break some new ground just like Ghost All in the right. Shell. That's a great idea. Especially Why if I, I get to have like a rocking pair of hooters like uh, like the I'm major. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the other way is just to say, hey, I'm gonna watch this thing that I really love. If you want to watch it with me, you're you're totally welcome. Yeah. And then sometimes like, the kid will wander into the room, sit down for five minutes, and then leave. But they remember it like the first time I ever saw Gunfighter at OK Corral, which is not necessarily my favorite Western, but I walked into it. My stepdad, who's 40 years older than I was, was watching it. He's like, Slim, come watch a cowboy movie with me. And so I watched <laughs> a little bit of Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas doing the thing. And eventually I was like, all right, I'm going to go play with my figures or whatever. And I left. But I've got this enormous sentimental affection for that movie now because I, for like a brief shining moment, I joined my stepdad on the couch, couch and watched some of that movie. Yeah. Speaking of shining, 
uh, I had an, an, a much less pleasant experience with The Shining as a like three or four year old. Uh, Sounds like fun. I saw. A little, I saw a little the, emotional scar tissue. Oh my god! Yeah, I just I saw the uh, the lady in the bathtub. Nice. And just the fucked up thing is that that memory, that image, like evolved in my memory over time. <laughs> So when I finally saw The Shining, I was like, okay, so that's what I saw. And in my imagination. But you remembered it totally differently. Yeah. yeah. She was like green and hairy. And like, I'm sure every t- <laughs> I'm sure every time I conjured up the memory, my brain was like, let's make this a little bit worse. So he never watches The Shining. That's great. Oh, yeah, that movie. It'll definitely put the zap on you. I guess I was maybe 10 or 11 when I finally saw it. And yeah, it it got me. It, it's it's a special movie without a doubt. If uh, if I could, well, I I read everything there was to read about the making of Jurassic Park before it came out. So at age eleven or twelve or whatever, I knew how to make a movie from start to finish with a seventy-five million dollar budget or whatever it was, and with very rare exceptions from that point on, no movie ever scared me because I knew exactly how the sausage yep, was made. Absolutely. Yeah, then it becomes all about just enjoying the craft. Yes, yes. Well, speaking of craft, if people want to enjoy some of your craft, like hear some of your tunes or check out uh, Dead Astronaut, where's the best place to start for people to start learning more about you? And obviously, you're at the beginning of your animation career, and so there's obviously going to be a lot more films to come, but... What's the best place to kind of put your uh, where people can get the Benjamin Hens deep dive? So the best the best portal for that would be Twitter, which is at Dwarfcraft, um, and then I'm also on Instagram at Supreme Commander, all one word. Um, and what was the site where I first saw Dead Astronaut, which you first linked me to? Uh, Bandcamp. Gotcha. Yeah. So actually, if you search "dead astronaut" on Bandcamp, you'll get right to the to the short and the soundtrack. Um, obviously, if you're a wrong real regular, uh, you're probably familiar with "Geekin' with James Hancock" and the short as well. Yeah, it's funny. I, I put it on uh, over the holidays. How much of this should I say? Let's just say as a family <laughs> member, I have a lot of family members. A family member who is young and under the influence of mind altering mind altering substances. <laughs> I was like, you know what? If you got two minutes, I just want to show you something, see what you think. Yeah. And like halfway through, they just go, bro, I have <laughs> no idea what's going on. <laughs> I just started howling with laughter. I thought it was so goddamn funny because I thought I was going to get, you know, some sort of insight or whatever to see, just see how like a younger audience member would react. And he was just like, bro, he was just, he was, he was too far gone <laughs> to follow. But I was like, you know what? That reaction is kind of perfect. Yeah, that's that's fair, man. Yeah, I, I mean, loved it. Hopefully, the next the next one will be simultaneously more and less accessible. Well, it's a short. You get as weird as you like. If you want to go full angel's egg, go for it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's your short. Well, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff I'm really excited to do in it. Um, dialogue, action, and then like the the freaky uh more subjective stuff is also going to be in there um obviously it's all still in the works most of it is still in my head and your noodle yeah um i i feel like i cracked the code on a character 
for the third episode, um, visually anyway. Um, but that's just kind of how I work in many directions at once. That's totally fine. Yeah, work at your own pace, however you like. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. And Benjamin, it is a pleasure getting to know you. And also, I just uh, anytime you want to come back and talk about animation, I feel like I keep saying I'm going to talk about more animation on the podcast, and I always forget. Like Adam Rakoff and I have talked about some animation from time to time. Uh, like when we did like the um, Space Cobra slash uh, Golga 13 episode. But it's, and of course, Bill Scurry and I talked about some of our favorite anime on my YouTube channel. But it's a topic I want to keep doing more of. So my door is open anytime you want to geek out about Ralph Bakshi or Tex Avery or whomever. Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm down. Or awesome. just, we can just, you know, rock out to the X Men. I mean, it's all kinds of good stuff to sink our teeth into. But once again, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please remember to leave a rating or review uh, wherever you might be listening to it. And if you want some short form content, as Ben mentioned, you just got my channel, Geeking with James Hancock. And uh, for social media, you can find me in all the usual places. But the best spot is Twitter at Colbrax. But thanks again for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>